Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 152. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. We made it through January, and we're now deep into the coldest, darkest, hardest part of the winter. And February is here. And as we all waited this week to find out if winter will end or last six more weeks, it's still very much a time to stay vigilant. With my shadow I have cast, then a long, lustrous six more weeks of winter. Six more weeks! Six more weeks! Six more weeks! Well, there you have it. The prediction has been made. Enjoy your six more weeks of glorious winter weather. Yeah, there you have it. The seer of seers has made his prediction. At Gobbler's Knob in Pennsylvania, Puxatunny Phil made his 2022 prediction. Six more weeks. Enjoy your six more glorious weeks of winter weather. Yeah, enjoy it, folks. After two years of pandemic madness and an especially wild start to 2022, we're in for six more weeks of winter. So strap in, because it's already been an interesting one. Whether you live in chilly Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, or sunny Los Angeles, the news has been hard. Russia could invade Ukraine any minute now. Afghanistan continues to collapse. Inflation is rising across America. And the pandemic continues to disrupt, divide, and kill. 2,600 coronavirus deaths are still happening every day, up 40% in the last two weeks. And every new piece of tough news is like more snow piled on top of more snow after what's felt like two years of winter. But sports has been a welcome distraction. Hockey and basketball are firing on all cylinders. The Winter Olympics start this weekend. And we all just witnessed the most amazing two weeks of NFL playoffs in our lifetime. And the Cincinnati Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. But like everything in the last two years, Any good times come with bad. Former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores is suing the NFL and three teams alleging racist hiring practices. Major League Baseball is still two months into a lockout, and it looks like spring training is going to be delayed later this month. And like everything else in the last two years of winter, any good news and any bad news also comes with uncertain news. Tom Brady is retiring. But not before the news was leaked and then unconfirmed for two days. So he was retiring, but maybe he wasn't. And then he was. Tom Brady, like the pandemic, never misses a chance to dominate the headlines and snatch back the entire nation's attention. Whether you're sad or happy he's out, it's drama. And the future of Formula One racing legend Lewis Hamilton is much less clear. 
but also filled with uncertainty and drama. He may be coming back, he may not. And after years of uncertain and weird drama, the Washington NFL football team finally changed its damn name, deciding to call itself the Washington Commanders. The Commanders. After all that, they landed on the Commanders. Terrible name. Terrible. It sounds like a bad USFL team name. In the running was Admirals, Armada, Brigades, Sentinels, Defenders, Red Hogs, Red Tails, Presidents, and the status quo Washington football team. And they chose Commanders. It took two years to change their name. They dragged it out and dragged it out, and they finally landed on that. It's ridiculous how long this all took. Almost as ridiculous as how long they had the previous racist mascot. But they extended and they extended. And like so many other things lately, after all that waiting, it ended with a thud. It's been a long winter of 2022 already. Because in many ways, it feels like a gigantic extension of the winter of 2020. From coast to coast, it's been a long two years. And already, a long winter of 2022, especially if you're in a place like Boston that just got two feet of snow. Or if you're in a place like Baltimore that continues to be the focal point of struggle, but also the focal point of the jackasses at Fox News and the king of the jackasses, Tucker Carlson, who told a few million of the people who watch his show this. And whatever you do, don't go to Baltimore. Baltimore is a major American city. It's only about 40 miles from where Jen Psaki lives. It's one of the worst places in the Western Hemisphere. It's a little bit of Haiti in the Mid-Atlantic. Baltimore is exactly what happens when you apply Jen Psaki's ideas to governing. Baltimore has got its problems, but it's not one of the worst places in the Western Hemisphere and a little bit of Haiti in the Mid-Atlantic. The worst place in the Western Hemisphere is probably inside Tucker Carlson's demented and traitorous head. Whether you're spending this winter of 2022 inside Tucker Carlson's head, like Vladimir Putin, or if you're hunkered down with Puxatoni Phil in Chile, Pennsylvania, or if you're surfing in balmy Los Angeles, California, there's one group of people that it's been longer and harder for than just about any other group in America. Law enforcement. It's been a historically tough time in America to be a person wearing a badge. Say what you will about the problems of policing in America over the last few years. Yes, they are many, but nobody deserves this. The rash of attacks and shootings on cops are happening with a frequency in America that we're not used to seeing, except maybe in schools or in incidents of black men being shot by police. But it's a new wave of violence inside a tsunami of violence that continues to grow and pound the United States nationwide. More and more in America, violence is becoming our new normal. It's our perpetual winter that never seems to end. And this new wave of violence hitting cops now is an issue that's captured the attention and the sympathy of most Americans, no matter where you sit politically. Because what's happening now is different, and it's severe. One year after watching Capitol Hill cops get spit on, maced, beaten, hit with flagpoles, and killed, January 2022 
was another brutal January for law enforcement. 30 law enforcement officers were shot in just the last month. That's up 67% from January of last year. Many law enforcement leaders are calling it the worst they've ever seen. And that number includes the shootings in New York City, where two officers were killed and three more were wounded. And in Houston, where four have been shot this month. Three officers were shot in Wisconsin. Three more were wounded in Georgia. And other states that reported officers shot include Nevada, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oklahoma, California, Illinois, North Carolina, New Mexico, Montana, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. Nationwide, cops are being shot in record numbers. And four of those shootings were ambush-style attacks. That's according to the National Fraternal Order of Police. And these numbers don't even include the countless incidents where officers were shot at, but the gunman missed. We often don't even hear about those stories. But we all heard about what happened in New York City. Two young officers, one 27 years old and one a 22-year-old rookie, were murdered in an ambush-style attack. Officer Jason Rivera and Officer Wilbert Mora were murdered. They weren't racist white cops beating up an innocent black man. They were two young Hispanic cops responding to a 911 domestic call for help. Young men who grew up knowing what needed to change within policing. Two young men who wanted to be the change to help policing evolve from the inside. The memorial service for Officer Rivera was broadcast on most of national TV. And if you didn't see it, it was a sea of blue uniforms with thousands of police officers, firefighters, and other first responders coming out by the thousands from all across America. It was a painful and tragic day in New York City. After an especially painful and tragic month for first responders in New York City and in Philly and in Baltimore and in Houston. Officer Jason Rivera was the kind of hero that ran in when others ran out. Officer Wilbert Mora was the kind of hero that ran in when others ran out. When I say look for the helpers, these men were the kind of helpers I'm talking about. This is a tragic time, and this incident should be a rare thing that actually unites Americans, all Americans, and especially independent Americans. But will it? From California to Montana to Kentucky to New York City, in January, it felt like Groundhog Day every day for our cops. And in this extended winter of 2022, police are now the hottest political chew toy in America, a space that was previously reserved for troops and vets. Politicians from all sides are manipulating, politicizing, and disrespecting our police force. In recent episodes, we've talked about our broken political system and our broken election system and our broken media system and even the broken NFL overtime rules system. And we've talked about how this is a unique time for Americans to rise to the moment, especially independent Americans, because our system is broken badly on so many levels. And those breakages are most clear, most painful, and most urgent when we focus on the violence. The violence in our political rhetoric, the violence in our schools, the violence in our streets. In this long American winter, that's about to be at least six weeks longer. That violence is grave. That violence is everywhere. And that violence is growing. 
and it's increasingly focused on our frontline helpers, our troops, our teachers, our healthcare workers, our flight attendants, and our cops. In America, it's been more than a winter of violence. It's been a new normal of violence. And from coast to coast, the rounds are flying. And there are tons of guns. If violence is wrong in America, violence is wrong abroad. Tons of guns, everybody's getting strapped. Tons of guns, gotta watch the way you act. And our cops are walking into it every single day. In this episode of Independent Americans, we're digging into it hard. With a guest who's been on all sides of the issues. We look deeper. We look with experience. And we look for solutions. Beyond the partisanship and the spin. Beyond the bullshit. No matter where you stand or how you feel, this is an episode to help you stay vigilant. And to help you shoot straight. And our guest is a very special leader who can help us do just that. He's a combat veteran, a philanthropist, a first responder, a creative force, a police officer, and a firearms instructor. He's a guy who literally trains people to shoot straight. He's a hero, a helper, and a man who knows about guns, a true straight shooter, my friend. J.W. Cortez. It's like you need to have still just to feel relaxation. Tons of guns. J.W. Cortez is a combat veteran turned actor, singer, nonprofit leader, cop, and activist. He was born and raised in Brooklyn to inspiring Puerto Rican parents. And he developed a real interest in the arts, along with a strong desire to serve his community and his country. He's a 17-year veteran of the New York State MTA Police Department and a principled policing instructor for both his department and the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services. He's also a firearms instructor, a defensive tactics instructor, and an active shooter instructor. But he's also much more. He's another important, iconic, and inspiring leader that's shaping what America was, what it is, and what it will be. He was the first actor to portray the DC comic book character Detective Carlos Alvarez on Fox's primetime hit series Gotham. He's also acted in a whole range of other roles on shows like Power, The Blacklist, Blue Bloods, and appeared in the reality TV series Stars Earn Stripes alongside the American sniper himself, Chris Kyle. And recently, he even did a cameo in a Jennifer Lopez video. And in support of our nation's frontline heroes and active duty military members, he joined Crown Royal, Sony Records, and country music star Kane Brown to sing a remix of Kane Brown's hit song, Homesick. He's also the president of the Detective Rafael Ramos Foundation, serves as an advisory board member to the Gary Sinise Foundation, the Semper Fi Fund, and was appointed to the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment to the Latin Media and Entertainment Commission. And for all his philanthropic work, In 2016, he was named by the NFL as the Hispanic Heritage Leadership Award recipient. And he was also a celebrity spokesperson and hero ambassador that participated in the critically acclaimed HBO series, Habla y Vota. In 2015, he was selected by Got Your Six to serve as an American icon and address members of Congress during the annual GI Film Festival to recruit their support in urging Hollywood to tell more truthful and accurate military, veterans, and police stories. J.W. is also the proud father of two sons. He's a husband and a loving owner of an American bulldog named Blue. He's an amazing dude. 
He's a helper. He's a hero. And he's a voice of reason. And he's an independent American. He's a man who's faced the winters and he's faced tons of guns. He's the kind of guy who'll help us get through six more weeks of winter and whatever comes after that. Because especially in the hardest days of winter, especially in a winter that never ends, and especially when the rounds are flying, it's a time to stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Nobody knows that more than our cops, especially after January 6th, and especially after January 2022. Welcome to the violence. Welcome to a walk on the long blue line. Welcome to six more weeks of winter. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 152. Tons of guns. Tons of guns. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. Happy February. We made it through January, one of the toughest Januaries we've ever experienced. And January has been especially tough for law enforcement. One of the toughest Januaries on recent record. uh, And I want to get into that. It's a topic we've talked a bit around, but never directly on. And I want to go deep into that and much more. Uh, with a a guy that I think is a hero, an inspiration. Uh, The Olympics are coming up, so this guy would be like a five-sport Olympian. We'll talk more about that, but he does a lot of things, and he does a lot of things well. Uh, Finally joining us uh, on the show, my old friend, the great and powerful J.W. Cortez is here on Independent Americans. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for that introduction, Paul. And the feeling is mutual, buddy. You would be definitely a decathlete. <laughs> <laughs> well, we started this uh, this conversation. Uh, you, I'm gonna, I always ask everybody, uh, how are you and where are you? But we, we, we first hooked up. And we were trying to do it because you were you're actually, if you can share, you're in a place that had a unique sound situation. So if you can tell us, you know, where are you and, and how are you, man? So I'm uh, just off of the Hudson River uh, in a small town called Hastings. Uh, beautiful, picturesque, uh, but definitely kind of tucked away where not too many people would even know we're here, which is how we like it. Um, how am I? I'm good. You know, I'm good. Uh, considering overall the climate of the world and all the things that are going on still uh, within the pandemic and, and just all the craziness of the world, I would say that I'm, I'm faring pretty well. And, and most importantly is that I'm healthy. So I'm pretty good. You, you look healthy, man. I see you working out. You put on like 25 pounds and maybe we'll get into that a little bit, right? You're, you, you know, I got to take a page from you because you just, you keep getting more fit the older you get. And we're not young guys anymore. But we met, I was trying to think about when we met. Before we get to that, you were in, to, to give people caught, you were in a soundproof like shooting area. You're at a trading center. Right. And you're a trainings instructor. I want to talk about that and your experience as a firearms instructor, your experience, um, you know, working as, as a police officer, working in law enforcement, also as an advocate, as a Marine, you know, a, a lot of that. But I was trying to think of when we first met. And I don't know when it was because I feel like we've always been around each other for going on like 20 years. You sang the national anthem. 
uh, a couple times at the IAVA events. We've been at so many things together, and, and I, I just I'm always inspired by you. So that's one reason. But do you remember where we first met, man? Because I can't. Um, you know, there was an event that I remember meeting you probably for the second or third time. It was over at HBO Studios, and it was a, an event called Got Your Six. And I remember yeah. uh, your smile was was this wide, and you know, you're. For people who haven't met you in person, you're you're a bit of a figure. You walk in, you take up a lot of space, um, huge smile, you know, and so you can't help but look in your direction. And uh, but I remember another event specifically for IAVA um, where we really got to kind of spend some time. I was about to perform, and you had asked me some questions. I had asked you some questions, so I can't really kind of pinpoint it, but I do know there were a number of first meetings and after a while it was like i know you man you know me right <laughs> well it's also you know in in getting ready for this conversation uh you've had a really successful acting career you're a brilliant singer uh you're running a nonprofit foundation you're on media but i was also looking through all the things you've done i mean you've been on on gotham but you were also in like the last airbender Right. Like you've been in some really cool stuff, man. You have this kind of Forrest Gump life. So maybe as a starting point for folks that maybe don't know your career, J.W., how'd you go from, you know, growing up uh, in the city, right, to, to becoming a Marine to now, you know, being in the last airbender in Gotham and on Fox News and everywhere else? How did how did that happen? Uh, by the grace of God, you know, I grew up on a block that the NYPD had nicknamed. This is in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. At the height of the AIDS and crack epidemic, uh, it was known as Little Vietnam because when when NYPD would roll up, you know, and, and this is again, this is not so unique to me. This is the reality for millions of people, especially living in inner cities across the United States or uh, underserved communities. And so when the NYPD would roll up, they'd come no less than four cars. The, the level of violence was was so great. So I was in that environment for most of my childhood. I was six when I saw the first person be shot and killed in front of me. Um, so oftentimes today when I am instructing young officers or veterans and I talk about the traumas of life and how we're born with this metaphorical backpack and throughout life we're adding stones and sometimes boulders. For me at six, it was a huge boulder moment unbeknownst to me and not only did I continue adding stones and boulders throughout my my upbringing in Sunset Park, but I added even more, you know, through service, both as a Marine, combat veteran, and as a law enforcement professional here in New York. But, you know, to answer your question, how does someone go from that environment and end up on television screens worldwide? I think it's a little bit of stubbornness on my part, believing that I could do these things that I saw other people doing, not taking no for an answer. Uh, lying to myself that yeah you're 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 gonna be able to do all, all of these things right why not you um, but the biggest probably component to all of that was the Marine Corps I was 18 I knew I had to get the hell out of 49th Street Little Vietnam like today mm -hmm. uh, I ran to the recruiting office I told Sergeant Archer uh, you don't got to convince me buddy I just need to know how quickly I can go. And that decision to join the Marine Corps wound up saving my life. My older brother, who was leader of the Latin Kings, one of the worst street gangs in New York City, had a big influence on me. And a few months after I was uh, I enlisted, he was indicted and he went away on some really bad charges to include murder. So that that decision was a faithful one. I didn't have the 
the the IQ or the uh, 2020 vision to know that that would have been the thing. But I look back and I go, man, how how did it happen? I would say that was it right there. Mm. It's it's um it's really important, I think, especially now for people to hear that story. You know, it's been a hard two years for people. This is probably, you know, when you get to the, like late in the fourth quarter is when you're most tired. We can kind of see the end of the pandemic. Spring is coming and a lot of people are worn out. Right. Some people are on the verge of breaking. A lot of folks are broken. And to hear your story, I think that that point about tenacity, JW, is so important. And those forces around you that guided you. Your story is, is not unlike Wes Moore, who we've had on the show. Right. Your brother went in one direction. You went in another. Wes went in one direction. The other Wes Moore went in another direction. But you've also been a powerful advocate for all the communities you've been touched by. Right. For for people in New York City, um, um, for uh, for cops, for Marines, uh, for the Hispanic community, for widows, for so many others. Um, and this is a really important time to talk to you. So 30 cops uh, shot in January, right? The, 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 uh, the, the Benevolent Association says it's a 67% increase over last year. So this, this seems to be different, right? And, and cops have literally been caught in the crossfire, um, especially in the last couple of years. Um, can, can you frame up for me what you think is happening in America and why. And then I want to go deeper and talk about Officer Rivera and Officer and Officer Mora in New York. We can talk about Houston and other places, but just from a macro standpoint, right? This this feels like we've talked about extremism and the proliferation of weapons and protests. It, it feels like America is becoming more and more like that little Vietnam you grew up in. Yeah. It is probably one of the most heartbreaking things to witness from from my perspective, at least from my point of view, you know, seeing these underserved communities ravaged by, like you said, the level of, of guns uh, making their way and kind of like infiltrating the concrete and steel of these buildings and these these parts of our city. Um, I think on a national level, on a macro level, I think what we're seeing is a systematic breakdown um, and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a really complicated onion, right? With so many layers, and each of them are just as important. Not one more than the other one. So when we talk about you know lack of parenting or lack of parents who are supported to then be able to raise children in a specific kind of way that we know is fundamentally needed and sound and morally. Um, you know, solid. Uh, that's one layer of that onion. When we're talking about the lack of um, accountability, not only on the parts of law enforcement, but of our elected officials, um, when we're talking about the lack of resources or lack of understanding and transparency, which we are culpable as well, right? We have not always been so transparent as, in, as a profession. And I think we're getting now to the place where we understand the need to be more transparent. And if we're more transparent, then we'll get that buy-in that we're also desperately needing, right? Because what I often tell people and remind them is that when the cops aren't safe, then the communities can't be safe, right? If there are no boundaries, then how can we expect the bad guys to respect the kids who are in front of that line of fire? It, it, we're seeing 11-month-old children being shot in the face in New York City, right? Where Where's the accountability? So, it's too big of an answer, I think, mm -hmm. for me to really encapsulate it and do it justice. But I can tell you that in every part of New York City, and, and I would say in other parts of our city where there, where there is a lack of, there are really good people in those areas. 
mm-hmm. that work hard. They're trying to make ends meet. They're doing the best that they possibly can. And they don't see police as the problem. They see it as part of the solution, right? But they're being drowned out, right? They're mm-hmm. being drowned out. So we have to do a better job and we're doing a better job, but we're not there yet. So I, I don't know if that really answers the totality of your question, but I think it's it's probably on the foremost part of my mind right now, the need for even more transparency and accountability. I, I think that I think that's really important, man. And I think, you know, parallel with that is leadership, right? I mean, we're at a time where where many in America don't trust institutions, right? They don't trust, trust Congress. They don't trust cops. Uh, they don't trust big business. They don't trust the military like they used to, right? And and, and I think those those erosions, and sometimes they don't deserve trust, right? So that divide, you know, compounded by this us versus them mentality, is 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 why I think one of the one of the, one of the reasons why I think this is maybe one of the most important independent Americans' issues, right? Like we talk a lot about the partisan divide. We talk about bringing people together on this show. We talk about the rise of the independents, and I feel like this is where we really need bridge builders, right? We need people like you um, and people like me. Like I've been, I've been in handcuffs. And I've been an MP, right? I've been a military police soldier. So I've been on both sides. You've been on both sides. We need people who can understand those sides and then forge ahead with some leadership, right? And I want to ask you this. I mean, I, I again, prepping for this interview, uh, 30 cops shot, two killed yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday at Bridgewater College in Virginia, right? So it's not just urban inner cities, right? Four in Houston, three in Wisconsin, three in Georgia. Cops were shot in Nevada, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oklahoma, California, Illinois, North Carolina, New Mexico, Montana, Washington. That's all just in one month, right? So it's not just inner cities. It seems to be like any other kind of combat. It's in the cities and it's in the country. But can you break down what happened in New York? Uh, It got a lot of headlines. We saw a huge uh, response from the police force around the country, thousands of cops outside St. Patrick's Cathedral in a way I've never seen before. And I've seen a lot of, you know, the funerals and, and protests. Two young cops, uh, Jason Rivera and, and Wilbert Mora, 22 years old, I think, rookie cops, um, killed, assassinated. Um, can you talk about what maybe people don't know that you know from your insight, from your connection to the community? We've seen the headlines, but what do you think is most important for people to know from your perspective about that incident? So the incident itself is something that, you know, we know to be one of the two most dangerous jobs, you know, calls that we go on jobs is what we call it. And one of those is motor vehicle stops and the other one is answering domestic violence calls. So here they are, uh, Jason Rivera, 22 years old. He's somewhat of a rookie still. New on the department, but also a newlywed three months, you know, into his his new marriage to his high school sweetheart. Right. And Wilbur Mora, a gentle giant, about six two, six three in size, had a few more years on the job, about 27 years old. And so there they are. They're responding to a call for help. Um, did they know what this person who called for help looked or looked like or, or anything about the person other than here's a human being calling 911 for some assistance. That's what they knew. So they responded and what they were met met with was uh, a hasty ambush, right? You're a military guy like me. So the the perpetrator basically set up a hasty ambush and these these young cops had no recourse, absolutely none. They were caught in a long hallway, uh, an extended fatal funnel, if you would, where this individual came out with a, a drum attached to a Glock 45 
and had about 50 or so rounds um, ready to go. And so he shot first um, Officer Rivera. Again, he had no course uh, recourse to to that. And then, of course, uh, Mora, uh, he took the subsequent rounds. They both went down. And we know this is how it happened because there was body camera footage to, uh, to capture it all. Um, and then, of course, the third officer, again, uh, new on the job, just a few months, if that. Uh, he uh, tactically retreated to another room. And when the perpetrator thought that the coast was clear, he attempted to evade. And that's when this officer shot him and neutralized the threat. He saved lives that day. You know, I often talk about his perspective and I often talk about the cops who arrived within moments and what they saw, right? What they saw and what they did by picking up these two cops in their hands with their bodies bloodied and the uniforms now forever stained with their blood. You know, what does that look and feel like? What does it smell like, right? How do you move on from that moment? And we can get into more of that later. Mm. But at that moment, the decisions were made. We got to get these guys to a hospital. And, you know, lucky for them, um, they thought, you know, Harlem Hospital was only about half a block away. And so they they didn't even wait for EMS to roll up with the ambulances. They just they ran over there with their bodies and, and did whatever they could to to save them. But, you know, it, it was it was not obviously successful. So that's the 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 scenario of what happened. But you know, I think I think the bigger picture now is what do we learn, right? Um, as you know, I'm the president of the Rafael Ramos Foundation, and for your listeners, Rafael Ramos and his partner Wen Jian Lu, on December 20th, 2014, were simply sitting in their car, about to get off of work. They were having their lunch when they were ambushed. They were executed. Right? Uh, there's no other word for that. They were executed, were assassinated, and so we learned some hard lessons. And so the NYPD's response was, we have to prevent this from happening again. So they bulletproofed every single car window in every single marked patrol car unit. So we're going to learn lessons as a result of Rivera and Mora's untimely deaths. I don't know what those lessons are. Perhaps we don't rush into certain domestic violence calls if we can. Maybe we pull people out of their apartments, mm. right, away from those kitchens and those bedrooms. Because what did we find out after the fact that the perpetrator had a AR-15 underneath his bed waiting yep. to use that as yep. well? Yep. So I think there are going to be some hard learned lessons here as a result of this tragic uh, incident. So there's there's um, I'm glad you took us through the tactical part of it. Right. Because I think yeah. that's often lost because those of us who've had to kick in a door, who've had a weapon in our hands know how complicated it can be. And domestics are the most complicated. I mean, I remember kicking indoors in Iraq, okay? And families are everywhere. People are screaming. You don't know who's behind things. You don't even know where walls are, right? We're trained. You do this for a living, training people on how to deal with those tactical situations. But the dynamism of it, how, you know, it's not like a movie where it's one shot. There are all these different angles and it's, it's, it's like a fish tank, right? So I think pick, picking that apart is very important, but there's also this, this other thing that I think we've got to pick apart, JW. For me, you know, for the last couple of years, um, the military and veterans have become a political chew toy, right? They, they, they've really been under fire, literally, and at home. And, and cops are in a similar situation. Cops feel under fire and are scared. Communities feel under fire and scared. And, and some politicians and some media are framing it up as a us versus them, right? And it often looks like, you know, a young black kid 
and a cop who looks like me, like a, a white guy with a beard and a bald head, right? But there's so many other elements of this and so many other shades of this. And I want to drill down on one point in particular. It's, it's Black History Month. You are uh, a cop of color, right? You grew up in a community of color. These two cops who were shot um, were, were cops of color who came up through the city just like you did. And I feel like the voices are being lost out there, right? Uh, in part because it furthers some people's political agendas. So where is the middle ground? Like we obviously need to improve tactics and training and discipline, and maybe we can go a little bit deeper on that. Getting guns out of the hands of criminals is, is really important. You know, educating everybody about these. But where do you see the middle ground uh, from a leadership standpoint? If you were mayor tomorrow, where would you start making change? We need those outside of those specific areas you've mentioned, law enforcement, the elected officials, the, even the bad guys that we were to kind of put them in their own silos. We need the people in the middle, right? The everyday New Yorkers, the everyday citizens, the people who are trying to do the right thing, who are afraid to let their kids play outside of their buildings or outside of their homes. We need those people to say enough is enough. They represent the masses. They are the masses. They're the ones with the most power. We know that, right? We're seeing it right now in Canada where, where people are coming together and saying, look, this is how we feel. Whether you agree with it or not, they're coming together. So removing the politics or the agendas or whatever have you, when the masses come together and demand change, that's when things will, will change, I think, for us. But right now, if, if this person or this other you know, mayor or this commissioner or this chief or Whatever the case may be, if if they're not attracting the masses to come together, then it's it's really a it's like kind of like you know hammering some sand, right? You're, you're not going to mm. get very far, yeah. Mm. So mm. we need to incorporate more of that, and I think with this current administration here in New York City, with this black mayor and this black commissioner, you know, I think more people are going to come together and say, okay, hold on, wait a minute. If they can come together, if they have the same common goals as we do, you know, un, un, whether I agree 100 percent or not, I think so long as we have skin in the game, then I think we'll, we can attract those people to come together. And I think yeah. that's what's been missing. You know, Yeah, I, I really you know, I think not to oversimplify it, but leadership can fuck up anything and leadership can solve anything. And we've been missing dynamic leadership on this in the same way I think we've been missing leadership on war. There haven't been many veterans in Congress. And we see what happens. 20 years of no oversight in Afghanistan and, and a litany of problems we've covered at length on this show. Um, teachers are similarly being ripped in half, right? And there aren't that many educators in the highest levels of government who've been teachers, who've been social workers in schools. And then when you get to cops, you know, there aren't too many mayors who used to be cops. And, and Eric Adams is going to be an interesting case study because he ran as a black man, tough on crime, and a former cop. Now, he's also a Democrat. So the question is, you know, can that work where, you know, the cops in many parts, a lot of first months endorsed Trump, right? Uh, the firefighters have endorsed Trump. And, and now you've got a black mayor down in Baltimore. Let's talk about Wes Moore, right? Uh, Tucker Carlson's banging on Baltimore. Wes Moore grew up in the inner city. He was in the 82nd Airborne, and he could be governor. So I'm looking at these leaders who maybe can be a voice there. And, and you're one of them, man. So can you talk about what is it like being a cop that's not white right now? Can you break that? And I don't want to oversimplify it and ask you to be a spokesperson on behalf of everyone. But but can you talk about those voices that I honestly feel are lost uh, unless they're being propped up by one side or the other? That's, uh, that's probably one of the best questions I've been asked as of late. Uh, I'm so glad you asked it, you know. 
I, I teach a lot of different things to, to young cops, you know, even to some seasoned veterans cops. And one of the things I talk about is a, it's a subject called procedural justice, principled policing, where it just talks about transparency and getting buy-in from the communities. And one of the things that keeps coming up from my brothers and sisters who are cops of color is the, the inability to simply take off a uniform and become whatever they're, they're trying to be, right? Paul Reichoff, if he was a cop today, he took off the uniform. He stops being a cop for until he puts it back on, right? Uh, not, I'm not saying not in spirit, but just in the physical, actual doing of the job, you know. But my black and brown officers and, and officers of color can't take off the colors of their skin. So they're cops. They're cops of color who go back into these neighborhoods and have had to fight some of the biggest battles that no one is talking about where they're being ostracized, they're being criticized, they're being ridiculed, they're being called every name under the sun. And it's unfair. It's unfair because here's, here's my personal take on all of this. When I grew up in Sunset Park, I never saw a black fireman. I never saw a black mm-hmm. cop. It was rare. Mm-hmm. It was like spotting a unicorn. Yeah. A Latino cop, it was like, oh man, look, we exist. Now today, the NYPD, for example, is minority majority. It's more reflective of the neighborhoods that we're having to patrol. That's a good thing. That's how it's always should have been. And yet, for some people, it still doesn't matter. And so you're caught in between these two worlds where you're like, wait a minute, there was a lack of representation, but now I'm here. And even though I'm here and I come from the same neighborhoods that we're in together, and I grew up here, and now I can be kind of an extension to that neighborhood and the people in here it's still not enough for some people. So you're like, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. What's the answer? The answer is, is that we have to remove the uniform and go, time out. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a sister. I'm a brother. I bleed. I breathe. I die. I do all the things you do, but I'm also now an extension to the things that you've been missing and the things that you've always wanted to be told and heard. I can be an extension to that. And for some, it's just not enough. And it's very hard very hard to, to get that across. I, I appreciate you breaking that apart because I think, you know, there, there's, um, this is a really precarious time. I mean, my father has been a volunteer firefighter for, I don't know, 40 years. He called me yesterday and he said, Hey, did you hear about the, 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 the firefighter who got shot getting out of his truck? Right. Like we know about that immediately. Every firefighter knows about it. in California, a firefighter got out of a truck, got shot and killed. Right. Like we know three cops got shot in Houston. We know about the firefighters that died in Baltimore and 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 in and in uh, and the tragedy in the Bronx. Right. So there's this moment where uh, the folks that we depend on the most from cops to firefighters to teachers are literally under attack. Fire teachers getting shot. Right. But I think what we're missing is really understanding what their life is like, but also understanding the structure. I looked it up while we're talking here. Cops in New York City start at $42,000, right? That's shit, right? And in places like San Francisco, I think it's like 75, right? My my cousin, uh, who I love dearly, shout out to my cousin Deb, has been a Port Authority cop for, I don't know, 30 years. Everybody knows Port Authority cops make like, what, 25% more than NYPD cops, right? And and it's out of whack, but I feel like when we look at uh, how they're paid, um, how their families are taken care of, what kind of life they can live, and then also training and education, right? If you only pay people $42,000, you are going to get a certain, certain crop of recruits. We know that. 
And, and the question I want to get to, JW, is there is some accountability also in the system and in the training and the discipline. You and I watch these videos sometimes of cops lighting people up, and there's no fire discipline. You got 100 rounds going after one guy. They're all standing out. It looks like a firing line. So can you talk about the need uh, for better training? Because it's what you do, right? And, and I know it's huh. disparate. It varies by police force. But when I watch some of this as a guy who's like, you know, former player turned analyst, right? I always say I'm like Tony Romo. I took off the uniform and now I'm out there watching. <laughs> but I'm doing I'm watching this and it's hard to Monday morning quarterback. But there are some times where where the discipline is broken down. The training is not there. And, and, and that's a systematic problem. So can you talk about that? You know, there's not one person in uniform that would say and I'm gonna, I'll bet all the money in the world on this, that would say, you know what? I get all the training I need. I get so much of it, I'm good. I never have to be trained again. You know, we're dealing with a human dynamic. It is impossible to train for every single scenario, but lessons can be learned. And sometimes some of the people who walk around who have seen the most stuff aren't always the, the trainers, right? It's the one or two people who... You know, you've seen them in the military. They boast X, Y, and Z, and you're like, this guy's my trainer, right? So we need people who have been there, done that, to be placed in positions of leadership that then can go and teach the young folks to avoid some of those mistakes. That's number one. Number two, we have to do more cross-training with all of the other facets of first responders because we don't do enough of that. So I show up to a scene where a firefighter has been shot like just happened the other day, you know, there's some protocols there and there's some things that I should know as I'm responding to this job that they should also know about the way I conduct business so that we're all safe and we can prevent, like you said, this, this barrage of un, undisciplined firepower. You know, I tell my cops all the time, the last time I checked, our guns, our bullets don't have strings attached to them. You can't pull back bullets once they leave your muzzle, right? You can't do that. So, the discipline you're talking about is one of my greatest concerns because innocent people being shot, you know, and, and, and now you're having to live with something because you're going to get judged on your actions. Even though you went there, all the intentions of stopping this person with a gun because of your lack of training or undiscipline, here you are under this barrage of gunfire being thrown back at you, making these decisions in a millisecond that may cost someone that you did not intend to kill their life. And you're going to have mm. to live with that. Mm. So, you know, to your point, we need more training. We need more seasoned instructors. We need lessons learned to be reinforced. We need training to be uh, uh, transcribed in a way that other disciplines can now speak to each other and learn from each other. Um, but I will also say that so much of the discipline that is that is lacking is also because to your point earlier we're not able to recruit the right people we're not able to recruit the best of the best when someone is being afforded an opportunity to be a bitcoin miner or strap on a gun belt and uh and a bulletproof yeah. vest and only yeah. get paid 42 grand which one do you think they're going to choose yeah. they're going to choose yeah. the easier one to make more money yeah. so we need people of good character but we also have to pay them accordingly um because look mora and Rivera, we're making 22 bucks an hour. Let that sink in. $22 an hour. Just a few dollars above the minimum wage. You know, so we're not doing them any justice by not being able to mm. afford them the, the opportunity to live in a city in which they're policing it because they can't afford it. Right. Right? They right, can't right, afford right. it. Yeah. 
so we definitely need more training. We need more dynamic training. We need training that mirrors the real-life threats and the real-life circumstances and the real-life needs of the environments in which we're policing mm. in. And that is across the board. Yeah, there's a there's you know General Petraeus uh, has been a, a mentor and advisor to me. Sir, you know him. Served on the board at Ivy. I used to say, you know, every crisis is an opportunity, and there there is an opportunity in this moment. I think if if there's vision at the national level, especially and within cities, to reimagine all of it. Right, like we we are, we need to reimagine what our military is, what our teachers are, what our cops and firefighters are. But it starts with recognizing that they can't do everything. Right. Like just like when we got sent to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, if, if every problem looks like a nail, then all you think you have is a hammer. Right. And and that was something I'm probably butchering it. But you know what I mean. Right. You send you send sure. a, an infantryman in to solve every problem in the same way you're sending cops into everything from a mental health problem to, you know, delivering babies to traffic incidents to everything. I mean, the amount of things they take on and we need kind of a full spectrum approach. But similarly, we got to think about what we're sending them into, how we recruit them, how we take care of them. There's no GI Bill for cops, right? There's no transitional housing for cops. I mean, in New York, places like Stytown, the biggest housing project, I think, in American history was built for World War II veterans. So they could come back to New York and transition. There's no housing that I know of for cops in New York City so they can be cops. So I think, you know, I hope that we can reimagine that. And maybe a guy like Adams can help do it. It's probably going to have to be the next president or somebody who's close to it. But I really want to encourage people to think outside the box and the way we look at this whole thing, because the, the vets and the cops and the teachers have a lot and the firefighters, they all have a lot more in common than we realize. And, and we're depending on them more than ever after COVID. So let me just ask you this, if I can, JW, and I hope you'll stick around for some more fun questions for Patreon at the end. We'll get to that. But um, can you talk about, you talked about, I saw you on Fox, you talked about morale. And I think morale is really key. And I know we're going to focus a lot on, on New York. De Blasio, I think, was the shittiest mayor I've ever seen in my life. And I think people underestimate how his tone and his message and his example did demoralize cops. I think sometimes it gets exaggerated on the role of a mayor, but he was an example where cops fucking hated him. Firefighters hated him more than they do the average New York City mayor, right? Uh, and then you've got COVID. And then you got cops getting shot and you just it's one thing after another. Can you talk about the overall morale uh, among, you know, cops, not just in New York, you got your ear to the ground uh, across the country. Morale is probably at one of the old time lows. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it was like in the 80s when cops were you know killed in record numbers as well. I wasn't around for that as a cop, um, but I can tell you that morale is at an all time low and it is palpable. It is, it is on their faces. And if you need another statistic to kind of measure that with, look at the number of cops committing suicide. I mean, at the height of the pandemic, NYPD had 10, you know, you know I always tell people, we teach cops in the academy how to uh, protect themselves from the bad guys. You know what we never do, Paul? We never teach cops how to protect themselves from themselves. Mm -hmm. We never, ever do that. It is only now in the last year and a half that we've created and instituted curriculums that talk about mental health, right? We're talking about, there's a, there's a term that cops always say to each other. It's uh, uh, be safe, right? Be safe, right? Complacency kills. Be safe, brother, sister. You know, but we don't talk about the backpack. Again, to my first analogy earlier, right? The boulders. Every single job you go on is a boulder. And that is an accepted truth about what the job is like. The kid that just is telling you that he or she was touched 
or the mom that drowned her child or the dad who did it. I mean, you name the, the horrific stories that you're going to deal with, that comes with the territory. But, but what doesn't come with the territory is all the things you've already mentioned. The lack of support from the elected officials, the, the, ostr- the ostracizing, the, uh, the demeaning, the, the lack of faith or trust, the, uh, the second guessing. You know, to a degree, it is expected and it's always been there. But I don't know if we've seen it so blatantly um, under de Blasio, for example, where you're like, I'm going to pay you 22 bucks an hour, $42,000 a year, but you're going to go take bullets. And you know what, though? I still don't, I still don't trust you. And I'm still not going to be appreciative through my actions about what it is that I'm asking you to do. And when Ramos and Lou were executed and those cops turned their backs, I'll be honest with you. You know, I recently read Commissioner Bill Bratton's book. His first chapter of the profession, his new book, is all about Ramos and Lou. He was not happy at the cops turning their backs. But I, I will tell you that I was not shocked it happened. I was not shocked. Morale is so low. You're being constantly beaten up everywhere you turn. What else are you expected to do and feel? You know, yeah. so to, your, to, to answer your question, morale is at an all-time low, Paul. It is so bad. It is so bad. People are not wanting to go out there and risk life and limb as quickly as before. And that's mm. a problem. Mm. That is a problem. You got guys second-guessing themselves. Just last night, uh, today is when today is uh, today is Wednesday. So last night, or actually early this morning at around one o'clock in the morning, a New York City cop off duty was shot. Uh, two carjackers tried to carjack him as he was on his way to work, and they knocked on the door and then they shot him. They didn't know he was a cop. They thought he was just a regular person, and so they were willing to shoot an unarmed person until that person, after he was shot, presented his weapon and then attempted to stop mm-hmm. that threat. So that's what's going on here, right? So even off-duty, on-duty, as young as 22 years old, for simply wearing a uniform, you're being attacked on all fronts. And so morale is at an all-time low. Mm. Uh, it's just, it's just I terrible. Think, I think it's really important for people to hear that because so many of these communities become the other, right? To many people, veterans in the military are the other. Cops and firefighters are the other. Black Lives Matter protesters are the other, right? And we've got to try to find ways to bring it together. And I don't believe really in silver bullets or even silver linings right now, but there is, I think, some hope around the fact that there is a generation like you and me and others of combat veterans that are becoming teachers or becoming firefighters or becoming cops. And they've seen a lot of dynamic combat. They've seen incredibly complicated situations. They've had to pull their weapons more often than most any cop anywhere. And they know how to use their weapon last, right? I think I think I screwed it up earlier, but when you have it, when you think, when the only solution you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? But I think vets offer the opportunity to at least be part of a core that makes it more complicated and makes it more, uh, more diverse, right? In, in a way that can be effective. So I look to that for hope. And let me ask you this, maybe to, to kind of bring it all back together, JW. You're a tough guy. You're a dad. You run a nonprofit. You give people hope. You're there with the foundation when other folks aren't. We say, look for the helpers. You're one of those guys. What are some tips that you can share with people to help you get through hard times? Because you've been some through some of the hardest shit anybody can go through. What works for you that might work for others? As cliche as it sounds, you know, uh, oftentimes when I was battling those demons, right, those voices, you know, when you're trying to use the mind to cure the mind, it gets a little complicated. Mm. Okay. 
And so when I figured that out through uh, the acceptance of therapy, and I also realized that, you know that term, it's just in your head? No, Mm -hmm. it lives in your body. Mm. And so this chemical imbalance that sometimes we refer to as a disease or an illness, and that we're so quick to go, oh, absolutely, cancer? Yeah, that's an imbalance. Things are being attacked. I get that. Well, the same chemical imbalance that happens through mental illness um, is real, and it's not just in your head. So understanding the science helped me. Understanding that I wasn't alone helped me. That backpack analogy, when I heard it the first time, my mind was blown. I'm like, my God, my backpack is like a duffel bag, right? It's, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's super heavy and it's super packed and it's okay. Like, I know it's there. I can acknowledge it. It's almost like having a book of all these things that we've seen in Dumpole. It's on a bookshelf. I see it on my bookshelf. I know it's there. I can read it from time to time. Doesn't mean that's the only book I want to read. Absolutely right. not. So I think uh, understanding the chemical imbalance, you know, look, Exercise, I've never felt bad after a workout. Mm-hmm. I've never felt bad after listening to some of my most favorite speakers, Paul Reichoff, David Goggins. <laughs> you know, uh, I've never felt bad after that. Um, and I've all, often, almost always have looked to listen to the people that I felt spoke my language. And mm-hmm. sometimes it was the furthest thing from, from me. Sometimes they weren't the, uh, the, the combat veterans or the, the, the super fitness person or that law enforcement professional. Sometimes it was people like my older brother who at one point was committing some of the worst atrocities and worst crimes, right, in the streets of New York City, but is not one of the most compassionate, most uh, giving human beings who has really reformed his life in a way where you're like, okay, you have to account for what you did, but the fact that you're so loving now and so quick to give your shirt off your back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to this guy, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to spend some time listening because there's got to be something to be said about that. So I don't know if that really answers it in a, in a no, quick, clean kind of way. But yeah, man. It really absolutely. does. I think, you know, you're, you're, you've been powerful in your example and also powerful in, in your candor and your vulnerability. And, you know, nothing has helped me more through the pandemic than therapy. You know, I'm, I'm on the phone with my therapist once a week, every week. I try not to miss it. You know, it, it, it's not a, again, there's no magic bullet, but things like that, walking, music, fresh air, friends, you know, mentors, especially who've been through shit, talking to them, right? Those are the things that have helped me. And also, you know, seeing folks like you out there getting after it, um, you, you know, next time we're going to have to go deeper into all of your acting uh, uh, exploits and all the great work you're doing out there. Maybe, you know, you can sing or something because your voice is incredible. What did Rolling Stone say? You were like a common. No, no. Hold on. What did they say? You're like a combination of John Legend and something. It was amazing. Yeah, and I, I think I think maybe a guy named Marvin Gaye. I don't yeah, know. Like, yeah. They said, can, dude. Can I I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, can no. I'm not anybody on the podcast who they say is a cross between John Legend and Marvin Gaye. I mean. Um, so that's interesting. You mentioned that. So real, real, real quick, uh, a quick condensed version of that. I showed up because they were looking for backup singers for this benefit called stand up for heroes in Madison square garden, uh, which was started by our friend, the, uh, ABC uh, reporter who was blown up in Iraq. Anyway. So I, I showed up to try out as a backup singer and I get, I get the backup singer part, right. They're like, Hey, you're going to have to rehearse. I show up first day and so this guy walks through the door who I guess is the leader of this whole thing, this whole gig. And I'm thinking that 
that looks a lot like the dude from Pink Floyd. But that can't be what this is. Long story short, Roger Waters was the leader of that whole thing. Uh, we've become friends. I'm a kid from Brooklyn who is now friends with Roger Waters and Pink Floyd. And it's all through the music. And I performed that day. And I've never been more scared, including my time overseas, <laughs> than that day. My knees were literally going like this, you know. And that's a true, true story. So. I remember it. You crushed it. Uh, it was the same time Roger Waters performed at the IAVA benefit. And I think you might have performed earlier at that same benefit. So it was cool to see that mashup happen. But um, it, it's it's another you know chapter in your amazing life story. And I encourage everybody to follow you, watch everything you do, listen to anything you sing. Uh, and, of course, support the, the Detective Ramos Foundation. Uh, my friend JW, you're a true helper, man. You're, you're a great example for so many people out there and the best of what this country is all about. So I appreciate all your leadership, my friend. Thank you for joining me and for all you do. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stick around for our Patreon members. But until then, stay vigilant, my friend. Always. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Rolling Stone compared JW to John Legend and Marvin Gaye. Tell you, the man can sing. Next time he comes on the show, maybe I'll ask him to do it. But he can do much more. He's the real deal. He's a true helper. Follow him on Twitter. Look for him on TV. And support the critical foundation that he leads, which he does in addition to working full-time as a cop. It's called the Detective Rafael Ramos Foundation. You can go to the RamosFoundation.org. It's named after Detective Rafael Ramos, who was more than just a cop. He was a dad. He was a husband. He was an uncle. He was a best friend. He called himself a man of God, and he was taken from us all too soon. Ramos was an incredible guy. He was an usher at his church, where he would eventually lead that ministry. He served in the frontline security ministry. He often volunteered at the Legacy Center in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and he helped in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. He was also studying to become a New York City Police Department chaplain. And the foundation's mission is to focus awareness on the needs of the families who've been affected by the loss of their loved one due to a line of duty death. Like so many we've seen in the last couple of months. The Ramos Foundation also works alongside those families who are in need of financial assistance by providing scholarships and helping with other expenses that come up after a tragedy like that. And a big goal of the foundation is to heal communities by bringing law enforcement and the community together. So they help people understand how vital an officer's job is, what it entails, and the dangers and fears they face every day, especially the fear of not knowing if they'll make it home after their tour, something the Ramos family never wants to happen again. Detective Ramos was a helper, a true helper, and his wife and boys are true helpers now. And so is J.W. Cortez. And they're all focused together on creating a new generation of helpers at a time where we couldn't possibly need them anymore. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Yeah, the helpers are out there. We talk about them in every single episode, and we've been highlighting them for over three seasons, and we'll continue to elevate them in the critical weeks to come. Look for the helpers. They're out there. I see it every day, including when I put out an ask for help to this community last week. 
If you follow me on Twitter or social media, you saw this. But if you didn't, here's the deal. I got a bolo, a be on the lookout from an army buddy of mine, my RTO from Iraq, a guy named Marv Reidberg, who asked me to share some information far and wide. A vet named Justin Little was missing. And all over Texas, the word was out to try to help find Justin Little. I asked everybody to contact the Copperas Cove Police Department in Texas if you had seen or had any information about Justin or his vehicle. I threw it out on Twitter, and everybody from Jim Laporta to Jake Tapper to my old friend Perry Jeffries, all across the country, people were spreading the word. And look, Twitter especially can be a cesspool, but this was a great example of how people can come together and use it for good. We looked for the helpers, and... We got some very good news. Justin had been found, and he was safe. And his family wanted everybody to know that they were extremely grateful for the help. One team, one fight, folks. And this is a good example of it. Look for the helpers. They're out there. And we'll continue to recognize, honor, and celebrate them. Use the hashtag, look for the helpers. We've told you before, they step up when the fires get the hottest. Speaking of fires, be sure to check out another Righteous Media podcast I've told you a lot about, The Firefighters with Rob Sarah. There is a new episode up now, episode 14, where Rob focuses on the children of 9-11, the children who were there at Ground Zero on 9-11. Over 16,000 kids were in school on or around Ground Zero after 9-11. And he talks to a heroic woman named Lila Nordstrom. She was a kid in high school during 9-11. And she's been fighting for the survivors of 9-11 ever since. The civilian children who survived and lived through that, who walked through the dust, who breathed in all that air and are getting sick now. Rob also digs into the firefighters that died in Baltimore and talks about Giuliani's latest antics, which include selling T-shirts to benefit himself rather than 9-11 first responders. But check it out anywhere you get pods. I'm really proud of all that Rob is doing with this scrappy little show. Check it out anywhere you get this podcast or at thefirefighters.us. And as promised, we continue to empower helpers and launch new shows. So to help you get through six more weeks of winter, Righteous Media this week had another big announcement. Following the successful launch of the firefighters, we got another one. If you follow us on social media, you heard. If not, here it is. It's a man you heard on this show. One of our most popular guests ever will now be the newest captain of his own ship under the righteous media flag. A true commander. The one and only Montel Williams, also known as Uncle Montel, the OG of weed. Hey guys, Montel here, and I can't wait for you to join me on my brand new podcast, Uncle Montel, the OG of weed. We'll be talking with some of the top names in the entertainment and sports industry about their passion for this incredible cannabis plant. We'll cover cannabis culture, trends, memorable moments, and much, much more. So make sure you check us out and don't forget to hit that like or subscribe button and give us five stars and be sure to visit UncleMontel.us for more great content and video. Yes, my friends, this week we announced the launch of a fun, dynamic, inspiring new podcast led by the trailblazing talent Montel Williams. It's Uncle Montel, the OG of weed. 
We're going to bring together a true trailblazer in media with the energy of a next generation independent media company to focus on the hottest issue in America with the hottest guests. The show will drop later this year as the newest and biggest addition to the expanding Righteous Independent Podcast Network. We're going to have in-depth interviews of rappers and other cultural icons and innovators. You can think about it like Jerry Seinfeld's comedians in cars getting coffee, but for weed or the hot ones for cannabis. Montel is going to smoke up and go deep with famous names about the first time they ever experienced weed and take the audience on a real inspiring and fun journey in every episode. And the title, Uncle Montel, comes from the respect that Montel has, especially across the hip hop community. Highlighting the conversation he had with legendary rapper, producer, DJ, and actor Redman, who called Montel Uncle Montel for his accomplishments and everything that he's done to motivate people. It's a sign of respect. And Uncle Montel fits him perfectly. When you hear the show, you will understand why. Every episode is going to bring you respect and experience and insight and connection to the hip-hop community and more, and the Righteous Media Five Eyes, independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. It's produced by me and our creative director, Chris Rosenthal, the brilliant Chris Rosenthal. You can hear the trailer now. You can go to the website now, and you can subscribe right now. Do it now. Do us a solid. Help us build this base for this show anywhere you get podcasts or go to unclemontel.us right now. Really cool website, and we're going to build it out in the next couple of months with your help. Follow on social media, subscribe right now, and get ready for new episodes later this year. Uncle Montel, the OG of weed, is coming in hot. He's another helper. So check that hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and share yours. You can also see video from my conversation in this episode with J.W. Cortez. You can get independent Americans gear. I've got a coffee mug that I rock in this episode that's really great. We've got new shirts. A lot of you ordered them after the last episode. Thank you for that. They're super comfortable. I hope you dig them. They're the perfect Valentine's Day gift if you haven't gotten a gift for your Valentine. You can also give somebody a belated Groundhog Day gift and help them get through the next six weeks of winter. It's all at independentamericans.us. You can also join our Patreon community. If you haven't already, please join our Patreon community. You are our most important sponsors. You help keep this show going, every single one of you. And you can join our Patreon members in getting exclusive content, including an extended interview with J.W. Cortez. I ask him his favorite drink. He tells me more Roger Waters and Kane Brown stories. And he's just a very cool guy that you're going to want to hear more from. You can do that if you are a Patreon member like Lynette who just joined. Big shout out to Lynette. Welcome to the Patreon community. So join us on Patreon. Help support this show through the next six weeks of winter and whatever comes next. You can also, of course, find Independent Americans, Righteous Media, and Uncle Montel, the OG of Weed, on YouTube and see videos from all our shows. And we're all over social media where you can guess the guest every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, I play guess the guest and you get to guess the upcoming guest. Last week, nobody got Michael Smirkanich. Delfino Sanchez, our buddy down in Texas, he tried, he always does, and he guessed Prince Harry, which was an awesome guess. It was incorrect, but I love the guess and would love to have Prince Harry on this show. But Delfino Sanchez, good try, really close. Thanks for playing. Uh, And this week, Andrew Morrison, longtime listener. Big shout out to Andrew Morrison. Had a great guess. He guessed Richard Angle. It was not Richard Angle. You now know it was J.W. Cortez. But I like that suggestion. We will try to get Richard Angle. We will try to get Prince Harry. We'll try to get anybody else you recommend. Go to Guess the Guest and play every Wednesday and tell us who you want to hear on this show. 
And as always, please support us. Go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can subscribe for free and share for free. The best way you can keep this show going is to share it with a couple of friends. And if you hate this show and you only want to give it one star, remember, my name is General Mike Flynn. That's Mike Flynn, General, spelled T-R-A-I-T-O-R. Got it? T-R-A-I-T-O-R, Mike Flynn. One star. That's where you go. Yep. That dude should go underground with Pucks of Tony Phil and never come out. Until then, Righteous Media is continuing to bring you the five eyes in our podcast, in our video, and everything we do. And it's driven by the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez, helping us get through all of our days and the six weeks of winter ahead. Doing the same, of course, is my wife and amazing two boys. This week, we had an interesting conversation with the boys where they asked me, what is a groundhog? Which I had to explain to them. It was kind of like a beaver, but a little bit different. It's an animal that Bill de Blasio dropped and killed one day. But Groundhog Information Day was this week. We watched the, the unveiling of the groundhog, which was much weirder than I expected. But my kids now know what a groundhog is. They know who Puxatunny Phil is. And my three-year-old can actually, almost three-year-old, can actually say Puxatunny. In other family-related news, Every once in a while, my older boy, who's six, stays up late with me and watches TV. And the rule is if he stays up late, he watches what I watch. Now, of course, I'm careful about what I watch. So after football or after BattleBots, which has a new season, by the way, and is amazing, we flip channels. And we flipped over to Fox, where Sean Hannity was on one night. And I explained to my son who Sean Hannity is and what he does. And without any reservation, he looked at me and said, Daddy... How come they don't arrest him? I didn't program him. I didn't suggest that. That was from his own insights, and I think it's a very good question, especially right now. In other news, as we teach my boys to be a helper, we have been on the lookout for a little dog in our neighborhood. Little Mateo is a 10-pound Pomeranian that has gone lost in our area, which can be extremely precarious given coyotes and wolves and bobcats and other stuff here in the mountains. But my boys are looking. And we are looking for Mateo. We're trying to help find this little dog and keep our spirits up during these winter months. And we do that in part by always playing music. There is a couple songs that we're obsessed with, and one in particular, one that you probably heard in a commercial if you watched the NFL playoffs. The NFL playoffs have been great, but there are too many damn commercials. But one of them has an amazing song, and you'll hear it in my house and in my car all the time and far beyond the six more weeks of winter. Here it is. I look real good today. 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 Yeah, it's just a groovy and fun song. And it's what we all need more of right now. Groovy and fun, especially if there's going to be six more weeks of winter. So... Share the song and keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy. America is more divided than ever, but we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are working to change that. We're adding light to contrast to heat. And if you're among that 42% of Americans who are independent, this is your show. But no matter what your party affiliation or if you have none at all, all are welcome. And we invite you to be a part of the solution. Help us get through the winter, whether it lasts six more weeks or six more years. It's the energy that will keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week by week. 
And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, a price that many cops have paid over the last few weeks, especially. And no, you're not alone in that vigilance, especially if you're a cop or if you're any first responder out there in the front lines. We are all vigilant and we're all in this together. From Puxatoni Phil to Kane Brown to the Washington Commanders, from Matt Stafford to Joe Burrow to Roger Waters to the families of Officer Jason Rivera and Officer Wilbert Mora to Montel Williams to Mateo the Dog to J.W. Cortez to you. All across this country, throughout the six more weeks of winter or however long it lasts, we're all in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. You look real good today. I look real good today. I look real good today. Dive in the tuba. Mommy look good. She from Cuba. All white like gang, gang. Spend a lot of money on my chain. Powered by Righteous Media.